0: You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigger with a library card. <laughs> this is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black, that is okay. I'm in a good mood. I've had a long day, but I'm in a good mood because I was getting ready for this podcast that I clicked on a video of Biggie vs. Supreme, which we'll get to. And it's hilarious. <laughs> it's a trailer on YouTube, but the production value is so bad. kind of reminded me of Smack DVDs, but um, more ridiculous. It's good. It's very good. We'll get to it in a moment. This week on the podcast, I'm reading, <laughs> it's a very funny video, I'm reading Justin Tinsley's It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. I, orig- I originally wrote down that title last night as Biggie and the Streets That Made Him, and I liked it, and I was going to like purposely mess up right now, but instead I just told the truth. Perhaps it would have been better to lie. Anyway, this is a non-fiction biography of Big. I recently read Jonathan Abrams' Oral History of Hip Hop. And I'd been meaning to read this Justin Tinsley book for like a year, because it's been out for about a year, but I couldn't get a hard copy. Then I came to America, back in America, and I was looking around for a hard copy and went to Barnes and Noble and they didn't have it. My local library didn't have it, so I finally bought one out off of Amazon and they still haven't sent it to me. So I had to get the ebook of this point. Being it's been a long odyssey for this book. And it's a long book, and I'm really tired of eBooks, so I read the first seven chapters, and it's, this is going to be a three-part podcast. What I usually do with non-fiction books, I like to split it up. A lot of information in non-fiction books in general, so this is going to be a three-part podcast. The first seven chapters are being read from an eBook, and the last sixteen chapters will be read from a physical book. If that matters, maybe you will notice this first podcast. I'm a bit off, you know. My game isn't, um, not 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 on my A game, but by the time we get to the back 16, I'm going to be firing with both cylinders, so don't worry about that. Okay, so it was all a dream. Biggie and the world that made him. Of course, we have to start with the preface of, uh, what more can we say about Biggie? Well, that's the thing about Justin Tinsley. He says the very same thing in his introduction, and he knows that Biggie's a tough uh, subject to cover because we have been... I feel like if you were born a millennial uh, black person who was into hip-hop, so that's going to be a large swath of black people who are millennials, you know, Tupac and Biggie really are uh, the cultural figures, you know. it, It would be weird to say that they are Malcolm and Martin, but like in a way, you know what I mean, just occupying that level of space in your head. Not that they were doing the same things necessarily, but just occupying the same level of space in your head Because otherwise, who would it have been, trying to think of who our great black leaders have been in my lifetime, and you'd have to go with, you know, Sharpton, Jackson, and then of course Obama. I don't don't know that any of those three are standing up to Malcolm and Martin. So, instead we go with the pop culture figures of Biggie and Tupac, who have been occupying this space for 30 plus years in our heads, uh, since their deaths, uh, what was that, 27 years ago, just about. So... Everything's been said about Biggie and I've actually skipped a ton of it because I was so, you know, like the documentary Unbelievable, which Tinsley talks about the movie, uh, which Tinsley references uh, his mother, Valetta Wallace's biography, I skipped it because I was there as this happened. So I figured I knew everything there was to know about Biggie. Now, I do not know everything there is to know about Biggie, and there are some things in this book that I did know that I'll point out in just a moment. But in order for Tinsley to deal with this problem of perhaps just rehashing old territory, he opens the book with a thesis. He says, And this book will connect the dots that trace back to the 1960s and 70s and show, oh, uh, excuse me. We'll connect the dots that trace back to the 1960s and 70s and how legislation, systemic racism, and America's evolving fear of the black body transformed a generation's worth of lives. And I have to say, just as an immediate evaluation of the book, he makes good on that promise. He talks about a lot of things that factor into how Biggie became Biggie that have nothing to do with Biggie in the way that we think of something having to do with our individualized persons, right? So he talks about the crack epidemic, he talks about waves of immigration, he talks about the war on drugs, and he does frame it a lot. That being said, he doesn't over or underdo it. I think it's balanced just right, because when you're coming to this book, you you really do just wanna read about big. If I wanted to read a book that was going to contextualize all of the black experience, let's just say the millennial black experience, uh, and a little bit older, the Gen X slash millennial black experience, And as I say that out of my mouth, I kind of, whenever I hear Gen X, I just think of white people, Um, you know? I wonder how many black people call themselves Gen Xers. For millennials, I think it's a bit different, and there's probably something there Something uh, to ruminate on a bit more. Perhaps I'll, I'll ruminate on it at a, at a different time. But any, at any rate, uh, if you wanted to read a book that was just about that, you'd go pick that up, but you don't really want that. What you want is a book about Biggie with a bit of contextualizing on the on the edges. Just enough so you understand, well, where did his mother come from? And what neighborhood was he living in? And what was going on at the time? And why were there so many people doing this? And what policies led to that? And Tinsley does a great job of giving us just enough of that information, which, again, I feel like if you're my age and black, you already know all of this stuff, right? It was in the music. That's the other thing too, um, about hip hop, is that if you were a hip hop head and you're really paying attention, you got schooled by all hip hop. Doesn't have to be, as I've said many times before, It doesn't have to be Dead Prez and you know, um, name your conscious rapper here. It can. It's in regular gangster hip you know nwa songs will school you about what's going on in uh in the hood or if you're not from the hood like myself in black america or just in being black in america in general so if you are black and reading this book i would imagine and you're of age you know of my age of a certain age i would imagine that um what tinsley is Laying out is all very familiar. If you're younger, okay, maybe not, but probably still, even then, if you're black, you know, because again, it's still in the music and you still got fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts, et cetera, uh, schooling you about what it is. So, anyway, enjoy the contextualization. It's not too much. We do get mostly big. All right, now let's hop into the book itself. I'm not going to go chapter by chapter, uh, I'll go section by section. So, the first seven chapters. Cover um, big from conception until uh, he gets until basically he meets Puff Daddy. He hasn't met Puff Daddy when I finished, so but Puff Daddy has been has entered the book. Puff Daddy also has an origin chapter. We get to meet the kid who became the Puff. That doesn't work. Uh, So, anyway, that's the first third of the book. I imagine. The second third is the rise, and the the third is, uh, the the final third is probably, I don't know if you could call it a fall. You didn't really have a fall, but maybe the aftermath. So, perhaps life after death. Bit on the nose. Okay. Uh, So, anyway. So, instead of going through chapter to chapter, you know, I'll just hit some broad points. Basically, um, Big's mother, Valletta Wallace, met a dude, and... They conceived Big, and then the guy turned out to be married, so he's no good, and then so his mother was super dedicated to Biggie her whole life, and uh, all she, you know, she lived for Big and worked so hard and all of that, and Biggie wasn't Biggie, you know, growing up, he was Christopher Wallace, a very smart kid, bright kid, affable, loved to be on the stoop, liked the neighborhood and neighborhood peeps, and He met, there was a local jazz musician, Donald Harrison, who he befriended and learned about music about and stuff, and all that was cool, and then he basically hit his teenage years and was like, oh, I can make more money selling crack, and even though my mom does all this stuff for me, I would make more money selling crack. So, that's, you know, basically what happens in the first seven chapters. Now, what I would like to do is talk about what I didn't know, what I liked, and uh, some author stuff. So that's that's basically it. And really, ma- basically, I'm just going to be talking about what I didn't know. The what I like section is very short. Probably just going to be that YouTube video. So here's what I didn't know. Big was a first generation American. This is crazy to me because I think somewhere, you know, I, I did know maybe possibly, you know, uh, perchance perhaps that Big's mother was Jamaican. Okay, maybe I knew that. I would have just dismissed it anyway. I'd have been like, "Oh, she's from New York or whatever," you know. It would it doesn't hit the same because the Jamaican New York connection is so strong. I barely even think of it as like a as an immigration thing. Uh, although I should obviously, but then but then on top of that, uh, his father was also a Jamaican expat. So two things: one, you know, immigrants in hip hop. It's hardly ever talked about. Really. Or at least when I was growing up, uh, certainly wasn't emphasized, and it was definitely a very closed thing. You know, hip hop was for Black Americans specifically. It is interesting in the last week or so, what with um, you know Emanuel Acho and uh, Van Lathan getting into an argument. To hear this conversation that's been bubbling up over the last couple of years about the difference between, let's say, ADOS, American Descendants of Slaves and then um, uh, black immigrants who are either African or from the Caribbean. It is interesting to think that Biggie actually straddles both of those sides of the conversation, and I would have never, ever even thought about that, ever. And so that's one thing that's interesting about it. And then the second thing that's interesting is that Biggie – is yet another Jamaican. And I don't mean yet another Jamaican in the sense that uh, we have a lot of Jamaicans or something. (laughs) I mean, he's yet another Jamaican that contributed to hip-hop culture, and not just contributed, like, shaped it. Like, uh, you know, in the last podcast where we were talking about Jonathan Abrams' book, The Oral History of Hip-Hop The Come Up, Jonathan Abrams and the people he's interviewing are talking about I don't know if they were explicitly talking about the fact that Jamaica had this outsized importance in hip-hop, but they were talking about the fact that people were Jamaican, whatever, it doesn't matter. The point being, there are a ton of Jamaicans who contributed to hip-hop, one, so that just, okay, that statement, okay. But then the Jamaicans who did contribute to hip-hop, it's not like they're just like, oh, they were kind of hanging out, you know, and they're Jamaican. They massively contributed to hip-hop. So uh, I'll just read this little section that that, uh, Tinsley wrote here on page 16. People from all over the world were flocking to the Big Apple for many of the same reasons Valetta came. Everyone yearned for freedom, whether financial, religious, or personal, and by and large New York embodied all of that, from the outside looking in at least. It was only once they arrived in America that these immigrants came to understand how much of a rat race it was. This is why many of rap's first generation of stars and influential names were in fact first generation Americans themselves. Cool Herc, born in Jamaica, and then... Africa Bombada, born in the Bronx, to immigrants from Jamaica and Barbados. Grandmaster Flash, born in Barbados. Slick Rick, born in England, to Jamaican parents. And then Shabaranks, whatever. You know, whatever. That's fine. But Cool Herc is the massive, massive one. Uh, Bombada is also. And then and then Flash is Barbados. But I just want to focus on Jamaica. Cool Herc, Bombada, and, and uh, Biggie. You're not going to get a better... I mean, that's crazy. So... I just think hip-hop's debt to Jamaica can't be overstated. Obviously, it's the whole diaspora in conjunction. It's Africans of the blood, Africans of the soil, and it's a, it's a rhythm moving throughout the world, and it's, it's bigger than just America. It's bigger than just New York, but New York is where it happened. I'll still stand on that, that New York is where it's happened and that American hip-hop, even if it's created by immigrants, that doesn't make it less American. That makes it more American, right? Things created by immigrants are the most American thing. So, to me, hip-hop is still American, like jazz and, you know, blues and all of that. But it is, it should just be noted that, like, it is created by immigrants with others, too. There were also other Americans who were non-immigrants or second generation or whatever, what have you, involved, but... I just feel like it's never been, you know, really hammered into my head until these last couple of books I've been reading. I knew Cool Herc was Jamaican, I'm pretty sure. Maybe now I'm just retroactively saying that. But I I, I never knew that Biggie was Jamaican. That's just so massive. That's just such a big thing. Uh, And his name's Biggie, and it's a big thing. Anyway, I thought it was a huge deal. And then so, oh, one other just note on the Jamaican thing Uh, he was talking about how Biggie felt comfortable battling. And he said, uh, these sorts of moments, this is Tinsley, these sorts of moments had been part of his bloodline from watching his Uncle Dave toasting and chatting on the mic, in quotation marks, chatting on the mic in Jamaica. Big's cocky yet suave demeanor with the mic was all but a family heirloom. There's a couple of different things I thought that were interesting about this. One is that, that, you know, people always talk about the oral tradition in... African American culture, African culture, black culture. And, you know, sometimes I think it can be a little overstated by people who aren't in the culture, but by people who are in the culture, I'm fine with it. Of course, it's a lot, it's like a lot of things that are said about black people. But at any rate, this is just a really interesting idea that Big was in Jamaica watching his uncle you know, talk on the mic in in that setting and then coming back and just being like, oh, I know how to talk shit. I've been, I mean, one, raised in Brooklyn. So, okay, there's that. But two, I've been back in Jamaica too. And then the other thing that's interesting, also just the phrase itself, chatting on the mic. Very good. Love Jamaican phrases. That's very good. The other thing about it is that it's interesting. And there's a couple of things like this that interested me here. One was that, Yeah, this is a good transition. One is that big was going to Jamaica. So, you know, when you're growing up poor, and so I want to be clear here. This is about being poor. This is not about being from Bed-Stuy. This is not about being from the projects. This is about being poor. You can be poor anywhere. To be poor, but to be able to go abroad and visit family is an interesting thing. So, you just flat out... there. There's a couple of things at play here. One is that he was a only child. So, that gives you more money to do stuff, right? You have more wiggle room. I'm saying this as a person who grew up with three siblings and didn't get on an airplane until I was 21. And because getting on an airplane is expensive. Leaving the country is expensive. Now, once you get to that country you got family to stay with in that country, the dollar converts nicely. Okay, fine. I get it. But still. So that's an interesting thing. And the other interesting thing was that Biggie didn't have to be out in the streets because his mother worked so hard. She gave him everything. You know, over and over again, the book talks about how he had all these video games and all of this and all of that. And so he didn't have to be selling crack. Like, but the problem was is that from his vantage point where he grew up, he saw other people out there and they were as, you know, many hip hop songs would tell you, they were the rock stars, right? They had the money, they were flashing the cash. Not just like, oh, that's pretty good money. He's got a nice solid job. He's got like you're talking about like five thousand dollars a week. You see somebody making five thousand dollars a week and you compare that with like an allowance from your mom and video games, it's really not the same thing, you know? So There is that aspect, but I think Tinsley does a good point of pointing out that, like, you know, he didn't have to be out there in them streets, and he chose to be out there in those streets, and he made it work for him, but he didn't have to be, and it's just an interesting thing to think about, too, with the flights to Jamaica thing. You know, what blows my mind about it is the concept of getting out of the hood for some people is so difficult to wrap their head around that, you know, they can't even... They don't – it just doesn't even happen, you know. And the same thing is true for people who aren't from, you know, uh, like the projects or something like that. If you just don't have money, it's just hard to imagine traveling, you know. And Biggie got to travel early on in life and he had an opportunity to – he was smart and he had an opportunity to stay out of the streets, but he got into those streets And so, I I don't know, I just thought it was interesting. It's also kind of similar to Tupac. When I was growing up, I'd always assumed Tupac was just like, uh, you know, there's that that Delta Funk Homo Sapiens song, Super Fiend. I always imagined uh, Pac was like super thug. But he really wasn't, you know? He went to a performing arts high school. Obviously, his mother was a Black Panther. She's mentioned in the book, too, because their legacies are linked. And, and and so Pac didn't also have to be, uh, I, I don't ex- actually remember Pac's uh, financial situation, but I do remember the anecdote, and I didn't uh, look this up, but my friend told me way back when, and I believe it's true, that Pac was trying to sell drugs, and he was so bad at it, they were just like, don't, you can't, you don't even know how to do this correctly. So it's just interesting to think about, like, two guys who didn't have to be in the streets with Biggie. His mother was taking care of him, and she was uh, providing for him, but he wanted more, so he got out on the streets. With Pac, he's this great performer and artist, and then he just came to embody this thing that I don't think exactly was him, you know? It's like almost like he became his character and Juice. But he wasn't his character. But anyway, this isn't this isn't a this isn't a Tupac biography. Oh, but so the reason I brought all this up was that on page thirty-seven, there's just a funny, a funny thing that happened, and, and, and um, it's in the documentary Bigger Than Life. And what happens is is that uh, Biggie lost a lost a ounce or something or whatever. So somehow he messed up some some kind of drug thing, and his mother came in and paid off the drug dealer for him. And this is in the documentary, and that's just kinda funny in a way, like I don't think I don't think that's what usually happens i don't I don't think your mother usually comes and and play, and pays off to connect, but uh, unless it's a family business anyway, those are things I didn't know. I didn't realize that about biggie I, I knew that i mean obviously his mother's been very vocal uh since he died and kind of before. So I knew that his mother was always in his life, but I didn't know the extent to which, you know, he kind of, well, one, didn't know he was first-generation American. Two, didn't know that he was able to travel a bit as a kid. And then three, I, I didn't know that he really didn't have to be in those streets. Again, you know, I guess in a way nobody has to be in the streets, but, like, in his situation in particular, you know, he he really didn't have to. Um but the lure of the streets was there. And uh, I think Tinsley does a good job talking about it. And we'll get to that in, the, in a bit. Because I, I just want to talk about one more thing that I did not know. And that's the nomenclature. I had no idea that Big standard for business instead of game. I feel like that's a backronym. Definitely never heard that before. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention. Is it on any songs on Ready to Die or Life After Death? Because if it is... I don't remember that, that lyric, and I've definitely listened I listened to both those albums within the last month, so I don't know. And then the second one is on uh, page 42 in the book, uh, the origin story of the name Biggie Small. So one night, Zaquelle and Chris were watching the 1975 film Let's Do It Again, starring Bill Cosby, Sidney Portier, Ossie Davis, John Amos, Calvin Lockhart, Jimmy Walker, and more. And then there's a character named Biggie Smalls. This was also in the oral history uh, book by Jonathan Abrams, but I just wanted to highlight it again because it's like once you learn something, it just pops up everywhere. Probably today when I'm walking around, somebody will go, "Did you know that the name Biggie Smalls comes from a black exploitation film from 1975?" And I'll and I'll get to say, "Yes, I did." All right, so that's what I didn't know, and then. What I liked, we'll get to in a second, but first what I don't like, there's a fucking helicopter that I guess is trying to land on top of this office building. I mean, it's, I've been trying to wait and it's like, what's going on, you know? Got a real Henry Hill situation going on here. Uh, anyway, what I didn't, or what I did like in the book was everything pretty much, you know? I don't I don't really have any specific things other than the thing that I was laughing about off top, which was, as we're, as big transitions from crack to music, there's a little, you know, a few stories here or there about how he came and the demos he's making and uh, he meets Big Daddy Kane's DJ and things like that. But one of the better anecdotes is um, when he meets Supreme and they freestyle, or excuse me, they battle in front of like a bodega or something, maybe I'm just saying that because it's New York, it's probably like a barbershop, I, I don't know, anyway, it doesn't matter. The guy's name is Supreme. And I was reading it going, like, this guy has probably gassed the situation up. Like, really, there's a quote that he says that let me know, like, oh, this dude is taking this too seriously. And so I immediately had to Google it. Google it. Am I saying Google weird? Google it. Anyway, so I immediately Googled it. And then I kept it open today, and I was gonna close the tab out. You know, I'm very big on tab maintenance. I don't like too many tabs open, so I was gonna close the tab out. And then I was like, you know what? Let me just click on. Let me just click on one. Let me just click on one, and I will put the I will put the one I clicked on in the show notes and just watch it because, it's, it's shameless piggybacking. So it was a trailer produced in 2014. You know, Big's been dead for 18 years, and like we we all want to get into like the granular minutiae of every single person we love. How did they become who they were? And do you have any story that nobody's ever heard before? Which I guess is the reason I'm reading this book. And so I had never heard this story before, but ha- having watched the two minute documentary or excuse me, the two minute trailer for the documentary, I feel safe in saying that reading a like paragraph about it in this book is as much as you need you definitely do not need to watch the entire documentary. But judge for yourself. It's in the show notes. So if you would like to watch Notorious B.I.G. vs. Supreme, the documentary, uh, I assume there's a link somewhere on the YouTube page. But yeah, check out the trailer in the show notes. Very enjoyable stuff. And then the last thing is about the author. So yeah, um, I, ha- I I really have enjoyed it. And I thought that he did a good job of, adding context, like I said, I thought he did a good job of explaining exactly who Biggie was in ways that we didn't know, we being me, maybe you, but the Jamaican aspect, the immigrant aspect, and the, by no means affluent, but just a little bit more money than I assumed aspect. And then the, the thing I think, you know, to piggyback on that, uh, by no means affluent, but a little bit more money than I, than I thought thing. I would like to mention the part where Jamal Tinsley does not absolve him for selling crack. So he says, uh, that. W- so, so I'll just read the whole passage here. He says, um, Big says, even when I was wrong, I got my point across. He'd rhyme years later. That was his way of solving problems. It wasn't right, but the intention was so pure it was hard to be mad at him. But that ruthless side was always there too. He didn't really stop to think about the destruction selling crack was doing to the community. He was selling to men and women who, for the most part, looked just like him. The consequences of his decisions never took precedence over his own ambitions. He needed the money, not just for himself, but because his supply wasn't free. If the Kinect didn't get his money, there'd be problems. And that's when we go on to tell the story about how his mom bailed him out. But he didn't absolve him for selling crack. And and I guess in general, Tinsley here can be said to be talking to all crack dealers in the black community in general. But I think it hits a little bit harder because, you know, uh, Big really didn't have to be selling crack like that. But he had those ambitions. So, you know, um, I'm sure living in Bed-Stuy, when he was living in Bed-Stuy, wearing the Catholic uniform that he had to wear fighting people, getting some money from his mother would have been cool. So it's it's not like it would have been like, oh, I'm a millionaire, but it, it was survivable. But instead, he, he chose the streets, which is, it is what it is, I guess, is the cliche term to use here. It, it, he did it. It didn't, it doesn't, uh, it was not right, but given the environment that he was in, it was not uncommon. And it's not unbelievable that he did it, I guess, is the best you can say for it. And I think Tinsley does a good job of of saying it that way. Not absolving him, not forgiving him, but contextualizing why he made the decisions he did. And I think it makes sense. So the only other note I have is on page five. This is also a note about uh, Mr. Tinsley. He says, he's naming, uh, oh, there were hit records. That he, so he's talking about different songs in the, in the big canon. So I'm going to actually read this line out of order. There were hit records that became Instant Smashes, the Undeniably Addictive Remix to One More Chance, or Junior Mafia's playoff or player, Player's Anthem. Got basketball in the mind, playoffs. And then the first song he named was the Socioeconomic Advancement Anthem, Juicy. friends, the socioeconomic advancement anthem, juicy. That's uh, okay. And uh, I guess the next time I watch the Jeffersons, it'll be the socioeconomic advancement theme song from the Jeffersons. that is just funny. I just like that. Sometimes a song can just be good. We don't have to attach all the other stuff to it. Juicy just a good song. <laughs> but, but yeah. But yeah. It is It is about socioeconomics, I guess. All right. That's going to do it short and sweet this week. We're under 30 minutes right now. This never happens. It's not going to be under 30 minutes once we add everything in, you know. But as I'm recording it, looking at my software, it's under 30 minutes. really makes me feel good. So... Proud of myself, proud of all you for sticking in there, and I'll be back next week with parts two. I don't know why I pluralized it. I'll be back next week with part two, and I believe it will be next week, but it might be two weeks. So usually it's two weeks, but I might try to speed it up a bit and go next week. So yeah, let's commit to that now. Next week, part two, uh, the next eight chapters in the book, and yeah. Yeah. Um, please subscribe on PocketCasts, iTunes, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, uh, check out the show notes to primarily to watch that YouTube video because it's funny. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, I will also, I'm, I'm on Instagram and TikTok now, but I've not posted a single picture or video. So Instagram, I'll post a, a picture of a book. Or something, right? That's the thing to do. And then on TikTok, I will make uh, the worst TikTok video imaginable. um, Not on purpose. And then I'll post that. So, there you go. So, you can find that in the show notes. And the music is by The Keep Running, also in the show notes. Everything you need is in the show notes. Just check it out. And, yeah. uh, It was all a dream for the next two episodes. And then after that, I'm... uh, potentially going to be interviewing somebody so look out for the first ever interview on the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast but I'll I'll let you know more about that if and when it happens so yeah until next time stay safe stay black and keep reading There was... was all the time I needed. (laughs) That's not fair. (laughs) That's not fair.